0: Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. In today's episode, we link two important topics. Boundary capital impact investors, and we discuss how an investor can take big themes, such as impact, and translate them effectively into making investments. We also talk about measuring impact, ESG, and how that affects investors and startups. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe in all podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmanandco Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we are joined by Dan Summers, who is managing partner at Boundary Capital. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks very much, Brian. Hello there. As usual, we'd like to start by learning a little bit more about you. So, can you tell us how you
1: became an EIS fund manager? Yeah, long story. Personally, I'd uh, built and sold a business, a tech business, and formed an angel club that angel club was really just for the purposes of my own investment and the other partners and really it was kind of serendipitous journey to turn that into a fund and eventually an EIS fund seemed like an appropriate vehicle for early stage we all shared the same values and uh, a few years later here we are that's the short version okay uh what sort of company was it that you started it was a video conferencing company, funnily enough. It was managed services for video conferencing mm-hmm. before video conferencing was as we're enjoying it now.
0: Okay. Yes, I'm, I'm laughing because we had slight technical issues at my end before we started. <laughs> so we could have done with those services earlier. So you formed Boundary Capital. You've got explained a little bit there, Brad. Was. Can you talk a little bit about the philosophy that you're operating Boundary under?
1: absolutely so myself and the partners are all experienced b2b technology investors all the other partners have phd's in various fields life sciences engineering etc ai and we are passionate about that we're also passionate about making an impact and we have our own version of impact we believe in enriching people's lives so this is a for-profit venture capital company and we are there to make good investments that make good returns and also bring benefit focused around sustainability and impact but towards humans towards the people themselves and that's embodied in our impact life fund which is our current fund
0: okay and that philosophy has kind of evolved because when i first spoke to you a few years ago impact wasn't really prominent in your thoughts. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how that's
1: changed and how that's evolved? That's quite right. I think what we did as partners, we looked around and we recognized that the things that we, I say the word enjoy doing, but are really passionate about, and also when we looked at the investments that we'd made, the ones, I wouldn't say the ones that were more financially successful, but the ones we're most proudest of, all had an impact theme. And we were arguing about how to actually measure that again short story but uh-huh. it was it was a sort of evolution followed by a revelation and then the the impact fund so if we look back at the investments we've made there are for sure investments that we've made that are not to do with impact per se
0: uh-huh.
1: although arguably from our definition and i'll come probably come on to that later i guess we we'll chat about that is that everything has a measurable impact to somebody a positive benefit but actually the vast majority of our investments were impactful by our own definition so potentially self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe we were doing what we were passionate and believed in at the time without knowing it. Here we are formalizing Impact Life Fund and what we stand for today.
0: Okay. And I'm kind of interested in that in the sense that it's also looking out to the future. I mean, we've, you've obviously been thinking about sort of the impact side or ESG or whatever for a while. But in the last year or 18 months, it's clearly come into focus in a lot of people's minds and a lot of investors' minds as well. While well, you're ahead of that was that something that factored into your
1: thinking? Well, it's 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 nice to to be investing in things that people want to invest in that are in vogue but making money is always in vogue. Mm-hmm. And our impact fund really is because the alignment is there in the marketplace. You know, the the point about us looking back and the investments we were proudest of is because they're unlocking big themes, big mega trends uh, that the world is facing today. And some of those were not really very mature, even a few years ago. So I would say that it's a lot of coming together. I I would probably shy away from, uh, you know, jumping on a bandwagon because we were already kind of doing it. And the timing and the confluence of things, I think, is where the uh, the market's waking up more. I will say, mm-hmm. or more of the market is waking up. That's probably fair. There was a lot of people who were very aware. So yeah, and there's some there's these there's huge themes. Themes about uh, the demographics changing. Themes about empowerment. Themes about sustainability. Themes about security. And these are the generally the themes that we're investing in in a, in a big way, as well as looking at what I'll call picks and shovels businesses. So in other words, there's big picture and there's small stuff today. I guess we'll chat a bit more about, about
0: that. Yeah, because we when we spoke before, we, we spoke a little about getting this big picture right. And in one sense, you know, we're all trying to do something that's very interesting in terms of predicting the future. And there's several ways of doing that. And I think particularly when you're impact, at the top level, there's a very, very big picture of perspective that you're sort of buying into. But how you actually apply that's quite interesting. So you touched on there why the big picture matters, but maybe you want to expand on that a little bit about, you
1: know, what is the importance about getting these big themes right? I think this is a great question because I think the big picture matters and also the small picture matters. They both matter together. Big pictures, if if, if you're launching rockets to Mars, if you are making magnetic levitation trains in low air pressure tubes if you are you know these things require huge sums of capital and they take years and they are really the folly of billionaires i'll say folly in a, a barring way by the way uh, <laughs> someone needs to do it and they're doing it and i'm absolutely behind them to make money out of some of the edge cases spin-offs Things that are around the edges, you know, the old picks and shovels. When people were building the railroads in mm-hmm. the U.S. in the nineteenth century, it was the people that made the picks and shovels and the jeans and and the and the victualling that were actually making the profits, mm-hmm. um, riding off the big trend. And and those are businesses that we like. Also with sustainable B two B technology angles as well. But fundamentally, riding the big themes or, or helping to unlock the big themes actually but in a, in, a, in a very focused way, in a particular niche. Otherwise, it can be very expensive uh, to be early and very expensive to have a big vision. And that's okay, we're venture capitalists, but fundamentally, we need to see a return in the next five years not, not 20.
0: Yeah, yeah. The example that sprung to my mind was from my days as a fund manager, which was kind of like 15, 20 years ago. And I looked at financial services companies and at that point, the aging society was a trend or established. We knew people were starting to live longer. We knew people would have to save more. But from an investor's perspective, it was really hard because while that was there as an underlying theme, there was a gradual change. And there was always something happening that was more important, short-term, big, local trend. So actually, yeah. it never really became an investable trend. So how do you think about, okay, you've got this big picture idea. How do you turn that into something that's relevant for investment?
1: So we have six themes they are environmental and social we've got i mean I I am reading them so I don't get them wrong from from memory uh, themes about consumption emissions and sustainability health, well-being, and enfranchisement. And I can unpack those, but we spend a lot of time. But why did you choose those topics in particular? So there's a selfless and a selfish angle. We looked at the SDGs, the UN's SDGs. We looked at, you know, so many things. And fundamentally, we're here to make money. Um, Secondly, we wanted an impact on human lives. So in other words, there's lots of things out there in nature which we all need to look after and it's not like we don't believe in that we are focusing on the making money of the things which bring financial gain as well as unlocking these things which which relate directly back to humans so making human life better quality longer lived and more secure those are really the sort of the the, the core of, of why we chose because I think the point underneath your point really is that you know impact can be subjective, and we see the confluence not around saving the planet but around you know promoting sustainable productivity for human beings and all the other things that are going on directly there.
0: Okay, so that's in a sense what you're thinking about when we're creating these scenes, and when you've got these scenes, a case of right, you've you, you've got a pipeline of deals. And you look at companies and say, which one fits in this box, which one doesn't fit in this box, or is it something more vague than that?
1: So there will always be some judgment around those criteria, although we've got a rigorous methodology. Underneath that, though, there is a hard quantitative metric, which we call the ELI, the equivalent lives impacted. We started from a blank sheet of paper, and we were interested to make a metric that would appeal to investors that wanted something that wasn't just retrospective or or a bit subjective that was there was a hard metric that would be used to judge any impactful business from any sector coming in, whether it's life sciences, engineering, software, and measure that impact alongside the financial impact through to its life cycle. So without going into too much detail, it's very simple Is the ELI is made up of three multiple factors. The first one is the scale. It has to touch 100 million lives or more. And that growth can happen over a generation. It can be a forecast growth, but it has to touch that many lives. So you're looking at the potential, in a sense, for that Correct, but it still has to be move the needle. And you know, even if you're growing to that much, you're still starting from a big number. So, you know, we are addressing things which electric vehicles, diseases of aging, engineering that helps provide security to people and empowerment. You know, these are all things which that segment has to be that size. The second factor is really an impact scale, and we've simplified it to one percent. 10% 10% or 100. Essentially, it's how much impact on humans does it give? So we have an Alzheimer's therapy polyblock, which has a very high specific impact. We also have Echion, which is a battery electric vehicle technology, and that has a low impact specifically. So in other words, electric vehicles are very good. Our framework provides that the impact on a human day-to-day is a a much lower scale than the Alzheimer's therapy. But obviously, it's a much bigger amount. It's much more than 100 million people that it could potentially impact. Alzheimer's is, I think, from memory, about 200 million and growing at the moment. So you'll kind of get the flavour of you multiply those two things together. The third one is a risk factor, and that's that will vary the most throughout the... because that's how stable and how operationally secure the business itself is. Um, and those these three things can be tracked quite quite easily, give this factor both to, to screen and also to monitor afterwards and report. And um, that alongside the financial is how we are framing our impact life fund for investors.
0: Okay. We'll, we'll maybe come back to the measurement because I, I still want to pick up a couple of the, the, the issues sure. in, in, in the big picture and translating this in, into something in practice. So, One of the things that I think is on some long-standing venture capital investors' mind is is that about 12, 15 years ago, we had a bit of a clean tech boom in terms of investing that didn't really work out very well. Do you want to maybe say why that happened and how that perhaps influences people's and your thinking now?
1: Yeah, it is really interesting to look back and to see, was it a false dawn? Was it a false profit? Was it just too early? And undoubtedly, there'll be different opinions. And some of that I'll agree with all, all different points for different situations. But generally speaking, there were people who saw this coming, that there was that something needed to be done, but the markets were not there. And you know, ultimately, a lot of the push has to be done by big change agents, governments, big corporations the transparency on the internet in terms of reviews and sustainability and what people do to a pair of jeans these days and how destructive that can be to the environment, other health issues for putting bits of plastic in the sea. You know, these are now not regulatory things that people roll their eyeballs out. There is a pull amongst consumers to say, I don't want this and I want to move away from this. And if there are technologies that help to obviate these things, then I'll pay that little bit more or if they actually do that in a productive way I'll pay the same and I'll go with that brand or, or whatever it is or there'll be legislation etc and that really wasn't there and there was some also some false dawns from a legislative point of view like carbon credits and other things which people gamified so the markets were fictitious and they weren't sustainable ironically themselves in my mm-hmm. in my view I would agree um, with you actually <laughs> So we, we And we also have a situation where being early is expensive. You know, visionaries have to have deep pockets or they have to time it right. And being early is much more expensive than being too late.
0: So you think the dominant thing was the markets or the technology? Because... Some of the reading I've suggested is that basically there was lots of ideas for technology, but it wasn't quite commercial yet. So to what extent do you think it was markets? And to what do you think is the issue where great idea, but it needed 10
1: years for the technology to actually work into something commercial? I think the markets for me are the dominant theme in that regard. You know, the markets are here now and there is real money being made profitably, doing things which are impactful. And there probably always was, I'm sure, but there's a lot more of it now. There's more for us to choose from. It's still hard work for us. We still spend a lot of time scrutinizing and putting things to one side. But there's just a, a, a huge amount to go after uh, at this point because it just all is, in the, is in ultimately in the consumer's minds, governments are making more effort and spending more money in this way and it's more long term it's more sustainable
0: mm-hmm.
1: so presumably you still
0: see stuff that's going on too early I mean I look at the quantum space back that happened and they're saying oh we'll have a battery in five years and I'm thinking in a way I'm great I'm really pleased that people are funding that yeah but I can't see you you're back to your billionaires in deep pockets and saying well actually it's gonna be seven eight. 10 years before you, you see anything from that. Presumably you still see stuff going on like that. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, there's always stuff that we see where the, the projections are several years out for revenues. And with the exception of life sciences, where we have invested in things that will never have revenue, in our opinion, until we exit. You know, we yeah. are building IP that is effectively it's uh, science and economically manufacturing that science and and for everything else the notion of when the revenue kicks in and product market fit the shape of the revenue that it's sustainable recurring preferably etc etc that's very important to us and so we do see a lot of plans that are great ideas that are visionaries that kind of the way they're thinking is give me money to make my to change the world and whilst we support that notion our commitment to ourselves and of course for our investors is we'll come back to them when the revenues are nearer and when we can actually judge that there'll be a a five-year turnaround for a for 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 an investor coming in now and and we keep talking to them
0: yeah it it must be hard to sort of turn people down like that a little bit because you, you can see that your intentions are good where, where do these people get funding because it seems to me this is one of the we, we, we talk about funding gaps a lot in our in our industry and for these people doing this sort of not quite academic semi-commercial potentially commercials
1: development that's long term where does the funding come from it's a good question there's a lot of public money that that, that sloshes around and i'll just kind of segue a little and then come back in is known to most people is you know the big things that have happened have been government spend and and most of it ironically military government spend internet transportation radar quantum computing a lot of this stuff has been invested hugely for defense and for uh, government purposes now you know from an impact point of view we're riding on the coattails of, of, of a lot of that stuff. It's a lot of it's in the public domain and and, and etc. Et, et a lot of these big vision projects still have that sort of ring to them. Some of them, you know, clearly we like but wouldn't invest in, and some of them we think uh, good luck um, <laughs> and uh, and we 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 wish them we wish them well in their ventures, academics are visionaries in their own way. They're pushing the boundaries of human knowledge, not for, for, not for financial gain. And there are other people who are passionately pushing forward things. And, you know, most entrepreneurs do not build businesses for the money. And this is a fascinating dynamic. It both is a positive dynamic and it's a challenging one when you're an investor
0: when you say entrepreneurs aren't building a for money, is that simply ego in your opinion? I mean, presumably a lot of these still want to build a big business and a profitable business. Well,
1: yes. I don't think we can sort of put everyone in the same category. Mm-hmm. But um, and entrepreneurs are a very heterogeneous set of people, as we know. And people may disagree with this statement. But from most of the people I've met, most entrepreneurs are – are driven by is it ego it might be but you know without ego without a need to build something a legacy something new you know some people have this mysterious r gene i think it's called which creates wanderlust and it's more prevalent in races and peoples who have traveled long distances in their in their histories so you know maybe there are genetic or environmental factors I've seen some pretty wishy-washy research, so I'll just leave it <laughs> open on this point. But, uh, but, but we'll dig sim- into that then. <laughs> yeah, but it is simulating that people do want to do stuff to help the world, and and when you do see the billionaires putting their hand in their pocket, is it ego? Maybe, uh, but they've got the capability to make visions happen that are not necessarily economic, and. Actually, economic things might spin off of those, probably will, and that's a good thing. Clearly, that's not our bag, but we admire that. We keep close, try and keep close to what's going on there because there's usually some kind of benefit and novelty, picks and shovels. Um, there's a lot of lucrative business in the space business, for example, just picking up the theme earlier. seeing some good deal flow in that regard. There's a lot of satellites being launched, a lot of issues that creates from space junk through to, privacy through to all kinds of things
0: yeah space was something that i saw getting prominent i got very high profile 2 or 3 years ago there seemed to be a, I think someone launched a space fund and it just suddenly seemed to be there was a moment when space had a moment in in sort of uk venture capital and then it kind of disappeared from view a little bit and i know the i know another couple of people are still looking at the area but it, where i sit it's it, it it doesn't seem a big big deal it, is that fair or you think there's more handling than we're seeing?
1: It, it is a big deal and it's growing and there's huge sums of money and they're increasing. To your point though, which I agree with, these things always have a sort of bow wave of interest where a couple of startups or spin-outs or big things get publicity and suddenly everything's about AI and everything's about space and everything's about genetic engineering. And then they, then the public move on to the next or quantum computing and it captures their imagination and they move on to the next one. Because actually the irony is, is that when these things are exciting and new and novel, they're not profitable. They're not really great places to be. The great places to be is when they're mundane and when they are forgotten about and when they are taken for granted, that's really when, I mean, the fact that we drive cars, use smartphones, use drones, all this stuff... And more, and there's genetic engineering being used in hospitals and countries around the world. You know that's mundane. People are just paying for a service for that. They don't do it and go, "Wow, that's amazing!" I get in my car. It's combustion. There's or there's a battery. or There's this, or, and that's the almost the you know the success. So so hype is good because it's a leading indicator. Hype disappears. You know, there's the hype cycle, the, the classic hype cycle.
0: I, I mean, we presumably. I don't know how the mundaneness interacts with you or potential mundaneness interacts with your perspective, because ultimately, if you're wanting five, seven, ten years to exit a company, you're looking for somebody to be buying it. At that point, are you saying I want this technology, in one sense, to be mundane, so there's a plethora of buyers, or are you saying I want this to be wonderfully exotic because that will increase its inherent value?
1: that's brilliant points i think on the inside i want it to be mundane but when you're trying to sell a company the last thing you do to tell a buyer is you know this is this is this is really (laughs) mundane i don't think they'll quite get where you're coming from they should see it as the best compliment ever yeah Uh, but selling a business to other businesses is just like selling sorry it's not just like but there are lots of elements unfortunately that are just as like selling sneakers to a teenager, you know, they've got to want it and need uh-huh. it and feel like, you know, their life is not going to be the same if they don't have it. As much as the economic benefits, the strategic fit, the da 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 da. So yeah, tongue in cheek. But you know, it's there are these ironies. I mean, in a way, the entrepreneurs biggest motivation is to make themselves redundant, is to build a company that they are no longer needed for. And the other biggest irony of investing in a really exciting company is for it to become the normal way of doing things it's just one of those strange things
0: yeah yeah it, it, well it, it, i think our industry is full of paradoxes uh, yeah. along those lines so yes that's another one let's return to measurement because you outlined your perspective and the way you measure things and impact it's an area that's hugely debated i know i was chatting with my boss last week about this and he told me that he thinks there's now 400 different ways of measuring i mean more esg perhaps an impact there's 400 schemes out there and it's just like that seems like too many
1: um (laughs) do you think this is a problem for the industry well, if it ever got to 420, then it would be a real problem. No, it, it is a really interesting topic. So probably just worth saying, ESG and impact could not be more different. I know that you're not suggesting they are, but just in terms of just putting that out there, ESG is a way of operationally measuring how a company is performing. Our definition of of impact is the what it's doing to society. And an interesting point that you didn't ask, but just, again, put there to show the difference, is a lot of our companies are not ESG compliant by any of those 400 different methodologies because they are fighting for survival on a cash flow point of view, uh, living day to day as all small businesses do, and they cannot afford. I mean, they're, you know, usually I'm not saying they're doing anything anyone would disapprove of. not saying suggesting that at all. Mm-hmm. These are well-run consciousness companies, but we do not invest on an ESG basis. And the ESG, I think, does lend itself to having multiplication of measurements because everyone wants to be ESG. Everyone wants to tickle the boxes. Impact, you could argue the same, but you know, impact is still subjective. But I think the real difficulty is harmonising impact. So ESG, pick one of your 400, and it should be translatable from company to company. What I'm suggesting and purporting for impact is that people have a different, may have a different view on impact, but actually harmonising impact. So how do you compare a life science business to an AI business? How do you compare that to another business? And that's the question that we spend a lot of time coming up with our measurement for. I think that was that was really important. So, yes, is, Do what, you think it's important to to, to, me- to actually measure? I mean, you,
0: you, you talk about comparing an AI with biotech, or I, I've forgotten your example already. That's terrible. Do you need to compare them? I mean, in my mind, I think the key discrete you mentioned about ESG is not the same as impact. I, I prefer the word, comp- you went to compliant. I think compliance is the word. So you have yeah, companies that mm-hmm. are compliant, or yeah. do no harm and you come the impact, which are trying to do good. And to my mind, the important thing is to try and distinguish between those two buckets. Yep. Yeah. You know, once something is in the impact bucket, do you really need to be able to say, Well, I think this AI company which is doing this in this area, in develop driving cars or making saving lives on the street, and this there's this drug potentially. And yes, you could Mason, to human lives impacts,
1: but is that relevant? To us, it's hugely relevant because we wanted to quantify is money. You know, if someone gives you a pound, it's worth a pound. And a pound returned from a biotech is worth a pound returned from an AI company. So, why shouldn't there be an impactful measure that unites all of that and allows? us to judge what we should invest in, not based on some leanings, but based on what comes in the funnel, screening them and being financially impactful for us. And also quantifying. I think there's an element that that risking being shortchanged if it's just qualitative, because then it's box checking exercise. It's impactful. Yes, great. Let's move on and measure the, the financials. For us, that wasn't good enough. That bar's not good enough for us. We want to put something that we will live and die by, just like we do financially. And that's why we spent a lot of time and effort and heated debates and research coming up with the with the ELI. So I'm sure someone has got a counter-argument somewhere for whatever they do. Mm-hmm. This is our philosophy. Hopefully it brings benefit to investors because they can actually measure us. And it gives, as I said, it gives us something that we can be held our feet to the fire on as much as financials.
0: How valuable is that for investors in one sense in that you've developed this philosophy? Is anyone else using this exact philosophy or or, or comparable philosophy? Are they able to compare you with other people?
1: That's interesting. Is there a metric to compare the uh, metrics of other people? Uh, and yeah. <laughs> and this, this is, I think, it's the problem where you got a plethora of schemes. It, it is. So we did a lot of research with the great and the good. I'm not allowed to quote them because it was informal, but there are... People whose whole job it is, some running charitable institutions as well as professional, were there to try to create objective criteria in this space, in the broad space of sustainability, if we can call it that. And we consulted, we spent a lot of time. Do we compare ourselves? Is there other people doing this? We haven't found anybody doing the methodology in in this way. We road tested it with some partners, some wealth managers, and we... Talk to some investors, and this was where we ended up. The feedback we got was the quality. The, the the people who were interested in the space again, they are they fall into many different categories. There's a, there's a bunch of investors out there who want to hold people accountable for their financials, and they also want to hold people accountable for their impact. It's not just a fuzziness that oh, it's impactful, and you've invested in it. There are investors who are and and part and wealth managers who and intermediaries who who want that and and I guess those are the people that will attract and vice versa
0: mm-hmm. so you mentioned investors there if investors out there li- hopefully listening to our podcast thinking, well, no investor wants to think your investment is doing bad stuff, but they actually think, OK, I want my investment to do good. So other than just saying invest with boundary, how should an investor think about approaching this area to say, OK, I want to invest in something good. How should I think about it?
1: It's a very, very good question. And I don't think there's any shortcut, which is to self-educate and self-enlightenment in this regard. Uh, I think there's a lot that the wealth managers and intermediaries can do. Some of those are more au fait with this area than others. And we're very willing to help, as I'm sure all the fund managers are, to help educate, give case studies, share ideas, backwards and forwards. These A lot of intermediaries, they know their market. They have, a, they have different approaches so i I think it's the the path to enlightenment is 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 education, and that's a good thing, right? So if you're interested in this area, you're parting with a significant amount of money, then look around, scrutinize, invest in the things that with what you want to get out of it. And um, clearly, you want to return, and if you want other things, there's different flavors. I think the nice thing about there being so many, metrics and i wouldn't say it's a great position to be in by the way but if there is one nice thing about it it gives sophisticated investors choice they can listen to the arguments and they can take the one that appeals to them the most so this market is still not fully mature that 400 may go up a bit but it will eventually come down <laughs> so we've got to go through that altogether. together investors analysts intermediaries fund managers it's just going to be a bit of a journey and just like the hype cycle with that we talked about with companies there's a bit of a hype cycle about impact and eventually i believe we won't be mentioning impact because it's kind of in the same way that you don't mention i mean there's not compliance but in the same way that you don't mention compliance you know you just you invest in a company in, let's say the stock market you don't ask is it is it not committing fraud you just it's regulated you you see lots of sensible people regulate you just you invest in the business because you like the business and and i think that's where we will end up it may take some time but again we want impact to be mundane mm. yeah. um <laughs> that will be the uh, the ironic prize for, for for our industry
0: yes i think i think someone said that i've got viewing the compliance well, the compliance angle is is that that will definitely become mundane. And and it's interesting you said that it's something that startups shouldn't worry about because I think probably it shouldn't be the dominant thing, but there should be an intent to be there because if you're looking to sell a company in five years or 10 years' time, whoever is buying that company is going to have a – they're going to have to satisfy their ESG criteria. And if they want to buy a company, they're going to say, either I want that company to be compliant – so it automatically slots or slots in easier, or I'm going to pay less for it because I'm going to have to do some work. So to my mind, it's, it's not something startups can completely ignore. I mean, obviously, I, I take your point about being resource constrained. I don't know
1: what you think about that. For sure. If you were going to sell a business, then part of the sale is like the training's example, the packaging, the quality of it, and the fact that it's got all the right things that the consumer needs to just get comfortable for the buyer get comfortable with it. And when you're buying a business, there's a there's a huge shopping list, as you know, of things that people need to wade through. And what you don't want is to trip up on 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 these factors now, of course, separating ESG from impact, mm-hmm. the notion of the what the company will be doing and how it's changing the world will be the most pressing mm-hmm. driver for absolutely for, for the for the value exchange. These companies hopefully will be growing up and big enough. But I, for us personally, the ESG is not something that we are going to mandate to our investee companies. We 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 have certain expectations of of the code of conduct, of course, and and we where we're on the boards, we can we can strong influence that. But but yeah, it's really the impact that we are that we're pushing for. So so yes and no. I think I think it's important as part of the package, but businesses when we sell them and has, as we have sold them is because of what it does the difference mm-hmm. it makes yeah oh
0: yeah i'm not saying um it's going to be the dominant factor i'll move on to my standard questions which are safer ground for me i think so we've got our usual questions we'll throw these at you and we'll get your thoughts what's the most recent publicly announced investment you made and
1: why do you make it so I'm invested in a company called InnoTech and it is a wound care management. Wound care device uh, management company. It's um, a little oxygenated, little bit of plastic with clever electronics in it, and it can reduce bedside situations in hospitals by seventy percent, as well as improving outcomes. It's it's incredible, and veterans coming back from war with limbs missing, right through to bed sores and everything else. hugely impactful in lots of ways. Obviously, falls squarely in the healthcare sector. So. That's a, that's, a, that's a big one for us in terms of well. So it just
0: covers the wound and does something fancy, or, or how does it, it work? Provide,
1: yeah, so it provides the right amount of oxygen, which speeds up sores and blisters and, and wounds, and it delivers it, and it's uh, economical. When you say right, is that more oxygen or less oxygen? More oxygen. More oxygen to the wound, sorry, yeah. Wounds need oxygen to heal quicker. As well as being impactful from a healthcare point of view, it's also hugely impactful. This was also what, what we what swayed us in terms of our ELI metric, that it massively reduced the bills for hospitals and got people out of beds. You know, there are people who are in there with with wounds that were taking weeks and weeks, or even tertiary care that was consuming time and resources. And it has a huge impact there, which so yeah, it ticks it ticked a lot of boxes for us. So far, so good. Uh
0: Okay, that sounds it does sound very good to me. What do I know? So, in the classic venture capital triumvirate of market products and management, we know they're all important, but which is the most important in your
1: mind? This is a great question, and I wish I had a straight answer for you. I think it depends, and also the fact that we're cross sector, so healthcare and AI, I think there are different situations that would lead to different answers to your question. A very good question. So, for example, If it's a healthcare outcome, we have a therapy for Alzheimer's, then that's, in my mind, about the product. It's about, frankly, it's about science and getting science right, uh, economically done. If you're looking at the electric vehicle market and the battery technology, then we're doing some clever things with Nekion with materials to make batteries last longer and have more power density. But actually, that wouldn't really be such a big deal if it wasn't for the fact that there is now a huge market for pressing upon electric vehicles and other devices which are going to reduce pollution and speed and a lot of other benefits. So for me, that's more the market. I'm, I don't wish to, to diminish the the research that's going on uh, in that company. Um, and of course, behind it is management at every level. But um again with a, with the a life sciences, if you come up with science and you're a great technocrat, that might be good enough with other markets and products, you might need to have more of a marketing stance in your management team. so it's a very rich question, and uh, yeah, not straight answer, but hopefully that's uh, that's how we think about it
0: uh, it's the insight I'm interested in, not the <laughs> the one word answers are always less interesting. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Just one time. <laughs> Just one? You you, yeah. if, you, if you want to add more, we can do that. But yeah. we'll stick with one for now.
1: So yeah, failure is 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 a great way to learn. If it's if you're not learning from your failure, then you are then you are failing full stop. We sometimes failure in is goes to plan. And what I mean by that is when we were writing the investment thesis, we had a matter of a number of risk outcomes or issues and it fails to plan and it doesn't mean that we're delighted with the outcome what it means is that we were prescient in how we thought about the business and one of the outcomes didn't work occasionally we get things that are off piste and i would say probably about 50 50 actually with things that are new ways new knowledge new failures and in both situations, we learned from them and we had a skincare business which was actually doing rather well. It was uh, treating psoriasis and eczema and it was selling. It was selling on the high street, but um, was became highly dependent on one customer. And, I mean, you don't need to be a rocket scientist, really, or, or anything, you know, even just even get an A-level in economics to realise this is a not a great situation. We did our level best to diversify, but in a small company, we became dependent on some unforeseen changes and the business uh, uh, failed uh, in that regard. So that's just one example there. Mm-hmm. Um, Presumably there's
0: a limit in that you can do as a venture capitalist in terms of if someone's got a, one customer as big, they're not going to turn that customer away. And you wouldn't want them to turn that customer away. It's, it, but it's all about di- getting the diversification away from that.
1: What, what use a VC can do? Well, the classic thing that a VC can do is invest more money. And uh, you know, this is a way out of everything. And if you end up kicking a can down the road, good money after bad, as they say, then we obviously don't do it. I mean, the EIS structure clearly makes that even more accentuated because it's each investor is coming in into a potentially new, new investment. But in any case, it's, it's just a discipline that every round of investment has to be judged on its own merits. And Whereas we could have supported that company and tried to grow it, at the time it was not the right thing to do. We had money to deploy in other ventures. So yes, operationally, there were lots of things that could have been done. We were on the board, we advised the management. What else could you do? There are lots of things in hindsight that we could have done at the time to get a large customer was was, was clearly seen as a, as a benefit. Uh, you know, The immediate thing that you don't have time for as a small company is to go, Oh, we've got a big customer, now we've got to spend a lot of time getting lots of other less important customers. It's a really difficult balance of resources. And could we have done things differently? Could management have done things differently? Yes. There it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the EIS industry in which we
1: work is far from perfect. What would you like to change about it and why? So that's interesting. And People throw rocks at the industry, and I'm not sure I've really got very a lot of rocks to throw at the industry. Okay. I can I can grab a small pebble, and uh, for the <laughs> sake of during uh, up discussion, but I think it does a huge amount of good in terms of inviting people who would not otherwise invest to invest in things they would not invest in. Mm -hmm. Uh, It also encourages people to learn about different sectors and things than just putting money in the stock market or in savings or other things there. And there's a huge, I mean, the HMRC do their benefits analysis in terms of jobs created and everything else. And so uh, when I look around schemes in other countries, The UK one stands out as uh, having really been very thoughtful and being very productive. A couple of pebbles I'll throw at it, though. Okay. uh, Is I have huge concerns about crowdfunding and they haven't gone away. I think there's a lot of problems still stored up for later. And what do you think those problems are? There are problems of lack of accountability, a lack of real professional investments People are deciding, they're waking up and they're seeing something on a on the tube or on the bus advert and they're saying, yep, yeah, um, I want to invest in that thing. And actually, again, it comes back to what's sexy, what's mundane, you know. Do you want to invest in something that's shiny that you can relate to? Or do you want to invest things that is actually going to make a ton of money and going to be impactful as judged from people who have experience? Now, people who have experience aren't necessarily right. You know, there's obviously everybody these days, and one of our themes really is that we're all empowered, we all can get information, we all can make our own decisions, and if you want to do that, that's good. Businesses, investing in businesses is hard. The odds are against you, and the odds are really against you if you want to pick your stocks or your investments when you don't even have access to management, when you don't really have, even once you made the investment, there's nobody really scrutinising and representing you on the board. So, Entrepreneurs aren't there to hoodwink people. They don't need, in my view, backseat drivers or breathing down their necks. But it's amazing how many businesses that go on crowdfunding are less rigorous and perhaps a bit more trying to really sell to investors rather than sell the product to the customer. And I just think it's a bubble. The regulators should do more. And people should be more aware of the risks and um, be more careful with their money.
0: Yeah. If I can give our podcast a little plug, we had an episode with Rob Murray Brown, who's kind of a specialist in the area about ooh, last October, I think. So if people are interested in that, they can go and listen to him. You mentioned the second
1: pebble? <laughs> well, I think that's probably my main pebble because if I'm honest, I think it's a good gig. You know nothing will be perfect there, but but it it should continue. we should we should actually. I think, support it, and
0: uh, we do. Yeah, Uh, I I think the Chancellor has said some kind words about it, so I I think it's fairly safe, despite what I see the headlines one or two people generating in the press just for the sake of speculation. So lockdown's been fantastic for my reading. In April, I'm over 20 books already this year. So have you got anything that you would recommend to, to listeners?
1: Any books? Well, a couple recently that really moved the needle. There's a lot of these kind of airport books and self-help and all this kind of stuff, and uh, I've learned to sort of steer clear of anything with large print on the front. But so two that really made a really big impression, uh, both by scientists, but scientists who have done research into uh, neuroscience and and psychology. Daniel Kahneman, I think he's a Nobel Prize winner. He is, yes. um, And Thinking Fast and Slow is a really good book that's scientifically based. There are elements where I think he wanders off and I think he could stick to his own science and his own title of his own book, actually, and not let his uh, S1 and his prejudices take over. But we're all, this is what drives us all, Is um, and if, you, if you're not familiar, the other one is Descartes' Error, or Descartes' Error, um, uh, by Antonio DiMazio, who is portuguese american neuroscience and he and his wife are big into research in this area in psychology and and he again has got some wonderful stuff relating to the amygdala and the limbic system about how that controls us and how it influences our decision making how our decision making is really all emotionally based however rationally we uh, we believe that we're making it and these things really help us to put us things in perspective understand ourselves more uh, they're fun to read very engaging but you know you you uh, so i'd recommend both of those
0: yeah i've read i've read the Carnival one but the other one's new to me so that is something i can add to my list for the summer
1: <laughs> very good what do you wish you knew when you start with boundary that you know now I wish I'd known how exciting and satisfying it would be. I mean, it's, you set up a business to just to do what you do. And now there's a kind of purple patch of confluence of things happening. And uh, yeah, it would have spurred me on more through the harder times and everything else. But it's just it's a great time to to be in B2B tech. It's a great time to be an impact. We're privileged enough to do both to meet some fantastic companies doing things that are incredible and uh every company I talk to I just it gives me a, a kick there are some brilliant people out there and um some of them are building brilliant businesses and it's a real philip
0: i i, I would second that having got involved in this of in the last few years it's definitely a very very interesting industry to be involved in so if people want to find out more about what you're doing at boundary where should they go
1: go to our website boundarycapital.com they can get hold of me dan at boundarycapital.com love to hear your views on this podcast and other things and any book to read as well any along the similar lines I'm all open to suggestions (laughs) right so
0: we'll post those in the show notes as usual otherwise thank you very much for coming on Dan thank you very much Brian so we hope you enjoyed that If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.